So just how sinful is sin, really? Is it minor infractions, or are we uh, guilty of something far greater? Let's talk about that next, here on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. So many today want to minimize sin. They want to call it a mistake, a boo-boo, right? Yet we need look no further than the cross to realize just how serious sin really is, no matter how slight the infraction may seem in our minds. I mean, it actually plunged the whole human race into utter ruin for simply eating some fruit, right? So just how sinful is sin? That's the subject of our time today as we take a look at Romans chapter 7, verse 12 and forward. The law, sin, and death. This is Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Once again, here's Steve. We can turn over in your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 7, and working our way through the book of Romans, rather slowly, I guess. In 1973, there was a uh, psychiatrist by the name of Carl Menninger, probably heard of the Menninger Clinic, and uh, he wrote a a best-selling title, and the title was, Whatever Became of Sin? That title just stuck out to me, especially coming from somebody who's in the, the work as a psychiatrist. I don't know if he was a Christian or who he was exactly, probably not, but I think this man realized some 40 years ago, it's hard to believe, that the concept of sin was really vanishing from our society. The idea that you call sin, sin. He argued in his book, he said, in the lifetimes of many of us, sin has been redefined first as a crime, that is, as transgression of the law of man rather than transgression of the law of God. And second, as symptoms. Since symptoms are caused by things external to the individual, they are seen as effects for which the offender is not responsible. Thus it happened that sin against God has been redefined and dismissed as the unfortunate effects of bad circumstances, and no one is to blame. We see that just run amok big time in our society today. Uh, We view today in our society many of the behaviors that the Bible tells us are sins before a holy God. And basically we look at them as psychological issues or emotional issues. And people look not for repentance of those things, but they look for therapy as a solution. Um. One poll said that even among evangelical Christians, many do not believe that premarital sex or even homosexual behavior is a sin. Um, There's a lot of churches that you can look up and they have certain classes and they call them anger management classes. But you don't see any anger repentance class. (laughs) See, that's kind of what happens. You know, we have all these resources to help us overcome our, quote, addictions. But we don't have anything to really show us the way to get away from these sins. 
And sin has become a disease that we treat therapeutically, not a behavior for which we're responsible. And so when you stop and you think of this, Christians who regularly watch a lot of different um, uh, social media, things like that, you're, you're obviously going to be exposed to a lot of this stuff from the world. And we've dumbed ourselves down to think that, you know what, this doesn't matter anymore. There was a time, I was telling my grandson the other day, there was a time on TV where it was against the law to show any scene in a bathroom. Didn't matter what it was. <laughs> it was just against the law. It wasn't appropriate. And now, <laughs> you don't even want to go there. Um, so Paul has been showing us, he's been teaching us that if you try to gain a right standing with God by keeping the law, you're doomed to fail. The law wasn't given, as we've learned, to make us right with God. He didn't give it to us so that we could keep it. He knew we wouldn't be able to keep it. To the contrary, Romans 3.20 says this, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In, in Romans 4.15, it says the law brings about wrath. In 5.20, it says the law came in so that the transgression would increase. And so here in our text, in chapter 7, Romans 4 says that through our union with Christ, we died to the law in order that we might bear fruit for God. So we've been released from the law in order to, verse 6 says of chapter 7, that we serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter of the law. And so Paul was answering his critics, and they were accusing him of saying that the law was sin. Because he constantly kind of seems like he's beaten up on the law, beaten up on the law, and he knew what they were thinking. And so he says, is the law sin? He says in verse 7, may it never be. In other words, there's no way. The law came from God. And so we're going to look at that law today. The problem is not with the law of God. The problem is with our sin and with who we are. And so when you mix God's holy law with our sin, it produces negative results. Kind of like if you were to go into a classroom and take some chemicals that shouldn't be mixed together and you mix them together, what's going to happen? It's going to explode. I remember in high school, we had a chemistry class and one of the kids did that. It didn't explode, but boy, it made a big racket and stuff was boiling all over the place and we actually had to evacuate the room because it was giving off these toxic smell, these fumes. And so in verses 11 and 12, Paul wraps up this argument that law is not the problem, but rather sin is the problem. Now, in the last couple weeks, we've looked at a couple things. First of all, we saw that the law was not sin, but it does reveal our sin. God gave us the law of God so that we could see the sin in our own life. So when you read a rule or you see a law That shows you you have to keep that law. And when you realize you can't keep that law, that's sin. And so the law is not sin, but it does reveal our sin. And then secondly, we looked at, in way of review, the law provokes sinners to sin. And that's just kind of in our genes. You know, you see a a sign that says, don't walk on the grass. What do you want to do? Walk on the grass. 
But the idea is that sign provokes you to do something you're not supposed to do. And that God's law provokes sinners to sin. We saw that in verse 8. And then in verses 9 to 11, we saw that the law through our failures to keep it brings us to the end of ourselves. In other words, we are unable to keep God's law. There's no other way that we can gain righteousness. Jesus said, if you want to be in the kingdom one day, how, how good do you have to be? You have to be perfect as my father's perfect. And you, you walk away from that and you just go, well, there's no way I'll ever be perfect. Ever. And God says, exactly my point. <laughs> That's why I gave you the law, to show you how imperfect you are. Now, I want to kind of just take a little introductory course here through the Ten Commandments quickly. Because I think it's important that we review what God's law is before we get into talking about how good it is. And so James Boyce in his commentary, he lists these commandments and he offers various thoughts on each one. He says the first commandment, the, the commandment begins where we might expect it to begin in the area of our relationship with God. And it says in Exodus chapter 20, you can turn there if you want. It's up on the screen, I think. Verses 2 to 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What does this commandment require? It requires us to worship the true God and to worship him only. You, you can't worship whoever you want. You can't make up God in your own mind. Sometimes when you're out sharing the gospel with somebody and you say, look, do you want to be under the wrath of God? You have to repent of your sins. A lot of times people will say to you, well, my God's not wrathful. I believe in an all-loving God. He would never send anybody to hell. What are they doing? They're recreating God in their own mind to ease their own conscience. You don't find that kind of God in the Bible. Is God loving? Yes. That's why he gave us the law to show us our sin and then to provide Christ as a way out of that sin. Um, this requirement requires us to worship God, the true God, and only Him. That's why it's so important when you talk about different religions, world religions. Well, don't you think if, if well-meaning Muslims are, are well-meaning and they're, they're sincere, don't you think they'll go to heaven? No. They're worshiping the untrue God. They're not worshiping the God of the Bible. And you could put that behind any world religion that doesn't worship the God of the Bible. John Stott said this, it is not necessary to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars to break this law. We break it whenever we give to something or someone other than God himself the first place in our thoughts and our affections. It may be some engrossing sport, absorbing hobby, or self-ambition, or it may be someone whom we idolize. We may worship a God of gold and silver in the form of safe investments and a healthy bank balance or a God of wood and stone in the form of property and possessions. Sin is fundamentally the exaltation of self at the expense of God. So just because you're not bowing down to some idol when you go home and burning incense to it or some weird thing, don't think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. Because there's a lot of things, beloved, that come in between our relationship between us and God. And so he says, I want you to understand that you need to worship me, the true God. Someone wrote of the Englishman, he is a self-made man who worships his creator. 
He is a self-made man who worships his creator. See, to keep this first commandment perfectly, which is the only way to keep this or any of the commandments, as Jesus taught, you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. It means giving him first place in everything. It means in all of our loves, in all of our goals, in all of our actions, God is number one. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy other things. But as soon as those things take precedent over God, we got a problem. It means that we use all that we are and all that we have to serve him. No one has ever kept that commandment perfectly except Christ. The second commandment was this. The first commandment dealt with the object of our worship, forbidding the worship of any false deity. The second commandment deals with the nature of our worship, forbidding us to worship even the true God in an unworthy manner. Look at what it says. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 6. And he goes into this at length. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in earth below or in the or beneath or in the waters below you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but loving but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments what's it mean it means it's a condemnation of any kind of idol worship but not just that I mean, obviously, he's forbidding us to worship things of gold or things like that. That's, that's clear. But you know what it really concerns? It concerns the worship of God by any and all inadequate means. That's what it means. One inadequate means, one idol is the, the mental images of God we carry about in our heads. What do you think of when you think of God? J.B. Phillips wrote a little book calling the title of it, Your God is Too Small. And in that little book, he spoke of inadequate images that we have as Christians in our heads of God. And he he used each chapter as a title of those inadequate images. They were this. One was resident policeman, parental hangover, grand old man, meek and mild, Absolute perfection, heavenly bosom, God in a box, managing director, perennial grievance, pale Galean, and so forth. He goes through all these different, different titles. See, we all at times have inadequate ideas about who God is, even though we may know him. That's one thing that troubles a lot of Christians. A lot of Christians have issues in doubting their own faith. And sometimes when they do that and they, they want counsel on that, I'll say, how much do you know about the God that saved you? Can you list any of his attributes? Tell me about, tell me about some of those. That God is holy. God is just. And go, go through the list of them. A lot of times they can't do that. You know, maybe they say, well, God is forgiving and God is love. And then they kind of struggle a little bit. See, the more you know about God, the stronger your faith is going to be because you're going to be able to respond to him in the proper way. And so we got to get rid of these inadequate images of God. The second way we worship God unworthily is by going through the forms of worship without engaging our hearts or minds in our devotion. You're just going through the motions. You're singing the words on the screen. 
Don't, can't even tell you what we sang this morning, but you know what? I just kind of went through the motion. We, we go to church, but our minds are somewhere else. So, you know, that's how it works. And our mind goes off. You know, what are we having for lunch? What are we doing this? What are, you know, do we get all this stuff done for VBS? What's, you know, coming up after church? And, and, we, we, and our mind just drifts. And we, and we pray, we pray, but our, our, our heads are bowed down. But you know what? Our hearts are not. We're just going through the motions. And see, we need to realize that that is something that's an affront to God. When we come together, especially as the body of Christ, to worship him, I pray that you engage your heart and you engage your mind in our worship. That you're not just kind of sitting there just going, ah, whatever, I don't even know what happened. That you're engaged. I love it when sometimes people after the service will come up and say, you know what, you said this in your message. What did you mean by that? And where can you show me in the Bible? Because sometimes I'll say something that, frankly, I don't know where it comes from. It just kind of, you know, okay, well, you mix that one up. You know, sometimes my wife will say, you know, you said this. Did you know that there's no eighth chapter in Ephesians? It's like, well, yeah. Well, then you said, turn to Ephesians chapter eight. I did, you know. And so sometimes if you're just checked out, boy, I could get up here and Mary had a little lamb. His fleece was white as snow, you know. And at the door, you're going, man, wonderful, wonderful sermon there, pastor. That was great. And I'm thinking, whoa, what, what happened? See, we need to engage with our heart and with our mind. The third commandment is this. Exodus 27, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And this isn't just talking about swearing. (laughs) This isn't just talking about using wrong language. But the commandment here is broken when we confess Jesus to be Lord, but we do not follow him as Lord to bring it real life today. The commandment is broken when we call him father. We call God father, but we do not trust him as the loving parent that he is. When we call the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit, and yet we think of him as just some kind of power source that we just plug into occasionally. Great Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote this. He said, we take God's name in vain. And he listed it. He said, when we speak slightly and irreverently, irreverently about his name, when we profess God's name, but we do not live answerably to it, when we use God's name in idle discourse, when we worship him with our lips, but not with our hearts, when we pray to him, but we do not believe in him, when in any way we profane and abuse his word, when we swear by God's name, when we prefix God's name to any wicked action, when we use our tongues anyway to the dishonor of God's name, when we make rash, unlawful vows, when we speak evil of God, and when we falsify our promise. I mean, some people may take such ways of dishonoring God's name lightly, but God does not. God says he takes the third commandment very seriously. He says there in the commandment, he will not hold anyone guiltless. So you don't get a pass. Fourth commandment tells us there, talks about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath? It's one of the longest elaborations on a a commandment, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your maidservant, or your maid 
uh, manservant or your maidservant, nor your animals, nor the aliens within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that it is in, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's Exodus 2, 8 to 11. Now those verses, as I said, contain the longest explanation of any of the Ten Commandments. And there's a lot of differences when people read that and say, oh, it means this, it means that. Some insist that they require Christians to worship on Saturday, the seventh day at Venice, for example. They say, oh, you have to, you have to worship on the, the seventh day, which is Saturday. That's why they're called seventh day at Venice. And they go by a lot of other things that are in the law. There's other Christians who believe that they worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day, but you can't do anything else but worship. So if you go home and watch TV, well, that's breaking the Sabbath. Some people believe that. Or you go to the store, you do this. We used to live in a country where on Sundays everything was closed. In some parts of the the country, it's still true. (laughs) Down in the Bible Belt, some, some areas, there's some retail shops. Don't ever try to go to... Chick-fil-A on a Sunday because you're closed. Why? They're making a statement. Okay? Right, wrong, and different. They're making a statement. This is, this is something we're going to honor. Now, I think the New Testament supports the idea of the Lord's Day. That's what we do. We meet on the first day of the week. That's what the Bible tells us to do, the day of the resurrection of Christ. It's a new day that's given for God, for worship, and joyful service. And we're, we've given a, a lot of grace in this area. You know, should you be working 24-7? Well, you can. You're probably going to burn yourself out. There's a reason why God gave us a model that you need to rest. You need to take time. Your body's not meant to operate that way. And you see people, you see men who are driven and, and, you know, you see the effects on their family and their marriages. Why? Because they're working 24-7. They don't know how to say, I'm not going to go in today or I'm not going to do this. Or, I'm not going to do that. I love it sometimes when I'll, I'll send certain individuals an email and it, you get an immediate response and it says, I'm sorry, I'm out of the office right now. You know, I'll be back at such and such and such. And you know, they're either on vacation or they're whatever. And I'm thinking that, that, that shows that, you know what, they understand boundaries. They understand that, you know what, this is not going to infringe on my time with my family or my vacation or whatever it might be. And when you stop and you think about it, do we keep the Lord's Day even as holy? Or do we just... Use it for our own purposes. Fifth commandment, when we pass from the fourth to the fifth, we also pass from the first table of the law, which concerns our relationships to God, to the second table of the law, Boyce says, which concerns our relationships to other people. And he says in verse 12, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. This has to do with what? Human authority. This has to do with who God's put over you. Your parents is the first human authority that God has set over us. Other authorities, all with different and various restrictive powers, all these kind of things, including the state, the leaders of the church, and the employers. All those things. 
To fulfill this command, you'd have to do what Paul says further in Romans when he says in Romans 13, 7, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. We're to honor our parents. See, when we rebel against authority, even beginning in the home, when we say, you know what, I don't like what mom and dad say. I'm going to do my own thing. That's sin. That's breaking. That's not honoring God. That's not honoring your parents. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. And while you're at our website, don't forget to download our mobile app. New and improved and ready to use, whether you're securely donating online or taking advantage of the podcasts on your mobile phone, simply go to iTunes or Google Play and look for Grace Bible Church Redwood City-CA. Or stop by our website, gracefultruth.org, and follow the prompts. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.